Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. We've reached the second part of a trilogy of episodes on Marilyn Monroe. One thing to note about this trilogy of episodes is that they won't constitute a comprehensive biography or filmography. There are so many angles from which to approach Marilyn's work and so many stories to tell about her life that will easily fill three episodes and still leave a lot out. Some of this omitted stuff may end up in future episodes, but in the two episodes to follow, today's and next week's, I've tried to keep the focus on the material related to Marilyn's status as the 20th century's most iconic blonde and the material related to her death. Last week, 
We discussed Marilyn Monroe's life and career up to 1953, when her inspired handling of the publicity after the revelation that she had posed nude for a popular calendar led to her casting in her first major roles. Today, we're going to pick up the story around the same time and begin to trace how her image was created and developed through her leading roles in movies and her featured coverage in the press, with special attention to the way Monroe's on-screen persona took shape during the height of her career. We'll also begin to talk about how that image trapped her. We're going to elide her personal life for the most part, except where noting her relationships helps to illuminate her performances, her celebrity, and the way she felt about the way she was perceived. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about the circumstances that led to her death. Between these episodes, you may want to listen to our Blacklist episode on Arthur Miller, which deals with their relationship and what was going on in his life and career. Information that it will be useful for you to be familiar with before you listen to the new episode next week. But for now, join us, won't you, for part two of the story of Marilyn Monroe. In 1962, Ezra Goodman published a book called The 50-Year Decline and Fall of Hollywood, in which he quoted a psychologist who explained why blondes like Kim Novak, Jane Mansfield, and Marilyn Monroe, who started the trend, reflected their times. They are blobs, the analyst said. Faceless wonders, poor lost souls that go well with an era that suffers from a loss of identity. Most people have suffered from a diffusion of identity because of the complexity of society, atomic scares, imminent wars. They feel they have no tie to anything. These girls have no father or mother, figuratively speaking, and sometimes literally. They seem to come from nowhere. As we learned in our first episode on Marilyn, she was literally a woman who was confused about where she came from and had no permanent ties to anything. By the time she was getting real work in Hollywood, the past that she had assembled was a confusing collage of mother figures who mostly disappointed or betrayed her, and father figures who mostly were happy to sexualize her but couldn't give her the permanent cocoon of love that she was looking for. This made the real woman who was Marilyn needy enough to want to strive for the spotlight in whatever form it took. As it turned out, what was asked of her was a kind of compliance with which she was well familiar. As Gloria Steinem put it, Marilyn was made into a symbol of what a post-war woman should be, meaning a beautiful bauble with nothing on her mind beyond pleasing a man and the kind of consumerism that would make her worthy of his desire. Where Jean Harlow had been the bombshell as feminine symbol of wealth and military might, in post-World War II America, Marilyn became the feminine icon of plenty and of the victory of pleasure divorced from worry or responsibility. As Norman Mailer put it, she was a symbol of, quote, every man's love affair with America, who suggested sex might be difficult and dangerous with the others, but ice cream with her. Sex was perhaps not difficult and dangerous with Marilyn, but sex itself was not always a source of pleasure for her. In fact, her female organs brought her a lot of pain and anxiety. 
Some reports suggest that she loved sex and was sexually turned on by the act of posing for the camera, which is exactly what her celebrity persona seemed to promise. Other reports say she rarely had orgasms and had particular difficulty enjoying sex with a familiar partner without the excitement of novelty, which is a very 1950s sex panic way of looking at a complicated woman's response to intimacy. What we know for sure is that she suffered from endometriosis, and her monthly periods were so painful that she'd usually be incapacitated by them, to the point where her studio contracts guaranteed time off during the worst of her period. And in fact, her reliance on prescription medication seems to have begun with doctors prescribing antidotes to her menstrual pains. And after a number of abortions necessitated by her career, when she was finally ready to have a child in her 30s, she'd find that she was unable to carry a baby full term. Another of the great ironies of her life was that this woman who was held up as the ideal of womanhood had endless difficulty with the parts of her that made her anatomically female. Last week, we talked a bit about the two film roles which Marilyn secured with help from her mentor and lover, Johnny Hyde, who died just as Marilyn was becoming a star. Those films, all about Eve and the asphalt jungle, did much to begin to establish Marilyn in the eyes of the public, and due to them and Hyde's influence, she was awarded a new contract at Fox, a studio that had previously rejected her. It would be at Fox that Marilyn would begin to come into her own as the star we now think of. Marilyn's first leading role was in the psychological thriller Don't Bother to Knock, in which she played a mentally unstable babysitter who threatens the life of the little girl she's supposed to be taking care of while under the delusion that a stranger trying to pick her up is her fallen soldier lost love. It's surprising that this film is not talked about more, because Marilyn gives a very good, serious performance in it. She's not glamorized for much of it as she would be in almost all of her future films, and the overall movie is somehow both terrifying and sympathetic in its sexualized portrait of female hysteria. Actually, given all that, it makes total sense why people don't talk about Don't Bother to Knock. It complicates the simple, lovable, white screen Marilyn Monroe persona too much. Her next three films would solidify that persona through stories that can all be read as satires or critiques of the insanity anyone, but especially women, could be driven to in a post-war society that prized consumerism above all else. This informal trilogy begins with tragedy, in Niagara, a parable about the 1950s fear of sex set against the honeymoon destination of Niagara Falls. Marilyn plays a young woman who thrills in dressing sexily and parading her body for men. She becomes acquainted with a nice, normal married couple, played by Max Showalter and Jean Peters, the future wife of Howard Hughes. At first, Showalter's husband criticizes his wife for being comparatively plain and conservatively dressed. But it soon becomes apparent that their boring, seemingly sexless marriage is a picnic compared to Marilyn's marriage with Joseph Cotton, an older man who she glommed onto as a ticket out of her small town and into a life of security, who has in turn become dangerously obsessed with proving himself young and virile enough to please her. 
This hasn't worked, and Marilyn has started plotting to leave him for a young stud. Her husband kills her lover, and then stalks and murders Marilyn. Both women in the film are depicted as hysterical. Marilyn becomes catatonic when she sees her lover's corpse, and Jean Peters' character is accused of being delusional when she insists that Joseph Cotton is up to no good. But at the same time, the sympathies of the movie are entirely with them. Of course, the end message is that it's better to be a Jean Peters. Not sexually exciting, maybe, but totally capable and not dangerous. Than a Marilyn. And yet, though the Marilyn character is depicted as a slut, completely selfish and emotionally unstable, the scene in which she attempts to run away from her homicidal husband is terrifying, and her death and absence from the film is legitimately sad. But sadness doesn't sell, and instead, in publicity for Niagara, the Marilyn character's doomed flight from death was billed as the longest walk in movie history. Because there was already a national conversation about Monroe's distinctly sexual, hip-swiveling walk, the implication was that ticket buyers were invited to come and gawk and fetishize the walk. Never mind that it was a desperate, terrified woman's attempt to walk away from her grave. Her next two films would become landmarks in the comic aspect of Marilyn's persona, but neither can be dismissed as a lark. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire both managed to be two things at once. In both, she performed the version of the blonde that pleased the male gaze, while the movie sent the message that the stereotype version of Marilyn wasn't all there was, or even the best of what there was. Gentleman begins with Marilyn and Jane Russell performing a song called Two Little Girls from Little Rock. This pre-credits number introduces them as two girls from the wrong side of the tracks who became gold-digging man-eaters because some man from back home broke their hearts. Marilyn's Lorelai and Russell's Dorothy may be in the same line of work, but Dorothy is interested primarily in pleasure, and she has a hard time following the doctrine laid out by Lorelai who is only interested in using her feminine talents to accumulate jewelry and wealth. Here, Marilyn is a quote-unquote dumb blonde who believes she's smarter than her friend. Oh, no, lover. Dorothy's not bad. Honest. She's just dumb. Always falling in love with some man just because he's good-looking. Oh, dear, that's I not... I keep telling her, it's just as easy to fall in love with a rich man as a poor man. But yeah. she says, yes, but if they're tall, dark, and handsome... She never gets around to vital statistics until it's too late. That's why I'm her best friend, I guess. She really needs somebody like I to educate her. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is brilliant as comedy, and Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, though not super strong singers, are two of the best at their era at acting through song. But it's also one of the most having-it-both-ways movie of a totally repressive decade in which most of the great films dealt at least subtextually with the pain of repression. Though both women ultimately marry for love, the most iconic moment of the film is Marilyn's performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, her musical defense of gold-digging as the only sensible form of self-protection for a woman who is going to be sexually exploited by men anyway. 
there may come a time when a lass needs a lawyer, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. There may come a time when a hard-boiled employer thinks you're awful nice, but get that ice or else no dice. He's your guy when stocks are high, but beware when they start to descend. It's then that those louses go back to their spouses. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Where Jean Harlow had used her sexual power over men to make fun of how easy men were to exploit, given that her own movies were made in Depression-era America and that Harlow performed with a wink, often literally, those movies felt like fantasies. One of the geniuses of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is that Marilyn does not wink. She performs her update on Harlow in total deadpan. But the danger of this approach to performance is that the satire can get lost. Certainly, the movie does not strain to suggest that Lorelai is ultimately wrong to use what she has to get what she can. In a sense, this would be the smartest of Marilyn's dumb blondes. How to Marry a Millionaire was somewhat more critical of the era's obsession with wealth. Though its opening scenes promise a sort of female Ocean's Eleven scam movie that unfortunately doesn't come to pass, what's left is surprisingly progressive, as all three of its female leads, Marilyn, Lauren Bacall, and Betty Grable, come to discover on their own that love trumps buying power. Marilyn got a chance to prove herself as a physical comedian, playing a model who believes that the totality of her value will be destroyed if she wears the glasses she desperately needs to see well enough to not crash into walls. The message of the movie turns out to be, basically, stop trying to conform to some false ideal. Just be yourself and everything will work out. This much more optimistic film became an even bigger hit than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and it would also be Betty Grable's last under contract to Fox, leaving Marilyn as the studio's top blonde standing. Fox, where Marilyn landed for the second time, three years after the death of Carol Landis, initially tried to present her as the successor to Betty Grable, who had been the studio's top blonde when Landis was trying to make her mark. But Marilyn resisted that marketing. She had nothing against Betty Grable, and didn't want to have anything to do with her demise. But of course, this was the way it worked. There might be more than one blonde actress working at a studio at a given time, but there could only be one built up as the blonde, as that moment's most exceptional girl. Marilyn vaulted over Grable because the public liked her better. Marilyn claimed that after she admitted to having posed in the nude calendar, fan mail started pouring in, much of it from soldiers stationed in Korea, and that soon enough, she was receiving five times as many letters as Grable. In the midst of this stellar run of movies, in August 1953, Confidential Magazine ran a cover story claiming to answer the question, why Joe DiMaggio is striking out with Marilyn Monroe. It wasn't Marilyn's choice, suggested the tabloid, crediting Fox's publicity department with turning the relationship into a will-they-or-won't-they narrative stretched out for six months. Confidential alleged that they hadn't married because Joe Skank had forbidden Marilyn to do so. 
Confidential also revealed that Skank, an executive at Fox, was Marilyn's sugar daddy, and that she wasn't the first girl to get this treatment from Skank. Quote, Skank is a cum laude graduate of the University for Daddy's Deluxe. This stubby Galahad has been a knight in a cream-colored convertible for years, to gals from 6 to 36. Beyond that age bracket, a girl isn't supposed to need a pop. That last line is all the more cruel in retrospect, given that Marilyn's life ended at age 36. Marilyn would write about Joe Skank in her attempt at an autobiography, which was published long after her death. According to that document, Skank never touched her, but he liked having her around as arm candy, and she liked being around him because he would give her long talks, schooling her on the important things. Love, sex, and Hollywood. I also liked to look at his face, she would remember. It was as much the face of a town as of a man. The whole history of Hollywood was in it. This article, coming in Confidential's third ever issue, put the magazine on the map as a peddler of shockingly intimate, and usually accurate, celebrity gossip. In this case, though certain details of the story weren't accurate compared to Marilyn's account of the situation, the gist rang true in that Marilyn had focused on her career rather than rushing to the altar. But Skank hadn't been able to protect her from being dropped from her first contract at Fox, and if he had anything to do with the delay in her marriage to DiMaggio, this is not something she noted in her autobiography. When she spoke of DiMaggio to those close to her, she said she had delayed marrying him because she hadn't wanted to marry him, and that she gave in, ultimately, because she felt sorry for him. The facts bear this out, insofar as the facts are that DiMaggio and Monroe dated for two years, which would turn out to be over twice as long as they would live together as man and wife. But it's true that Marilyn went into the marriage seeing it as an act of defiance against the executives at her studio. Up to this point, they had refused to let her even see the scripts for her films before production began, let alone play a role in choosing projects. She felt she needed to do something to send the message to Fox that they weren't her daddies anymore. I want to be an artist, Marilyn complained to one of her acting coaches, Michael Chekhov. Not an erotic freak. I don't want to be sold to the public as a celluloid aphrodisical. It was right for the first few years. But now, it's different. Part of the reason why it was now different had to do with DiMaggio, who is uncomfortable with Marilyn's highly sexual image. But it's also easy to see why Marilyn was frustrated by the opportunities Fox was giving her. Her last film before her marriage to DiMaggio was River of No Return, in which she played a dance hall floozy who falls in love with Robert Mitchum after he tries to rape her. Fox then tried to insert her into a film based on a popular musical called The Girl with the Pink Tights. But Marilyn decided the part was offensive, and Joe DiMaggio agreed. He didn't want her playing parts where her sole function on screen would be to be ogled. He suggested that rather than make a movie they both felt she would be demeaned by, she marry him and accompany him on a trip to Japan. 
On January 4th, 1954, Fox put her on suspension for refusing to make the movie. Ten days later, she and DiMaggio married. In their write-ups on the union of the baseball hero and the starlet, both Time and Life magazines compared Monroe to Harlow, which made sense in a lot of ways, but the comparison shouldn't have flattered a newlywed. All of Jean Harlow's marriages were ill-fated and unsuccessful. Marilyn, too, had Harlow on the brain during the DiMaggio marriage. I kept thinking of her, rolling over the facts of her life in my mind, Marilyn said later. We just seemed to have the same spirit or something. I don't know. I kept wondering if I would die young like her, too. There were signs right away that the DiMaggio-Monroe marriage was not peaceful. Before departing for Japan, Marilyn was photographed with a splint holding in place a newly broken thumb. Six weeks later, back in Los Angeles, Marilyn told columnist Sidney Skolsky that she was going to marry Arthur Miller. Friends were already starting to notice bruises on her arms, which it was assumed were left by her overprotective husband. DiMaggio had chased after her after seeing a typical magazine shot emphasizing her body. This one calibrated for him in that she was wearing a sexy baseball outfit in it. But once they were married, he didn't like her looking so sexy in public. Because Marilyn's image was so totally tied to her sexuality, this would have meant giving up acting, which would have been fine with Joe, but not with Marilyn. She took almost a half a year off after the marriage, apparently trying to appease him and at the same time mend fences with Fox. The studio eventually agreed to give Marilyn a part she really wanted in Billy Wilder's The Seven-Year Itch, if she'd first play a supporting role in the musical There's No Business Like Show Business. Marilyn herself was annoyed that sex seemed to be all anyone wanted from her, even in There's No Business Like Show Business, a classic musical in which she was choreographed to lift her skirt for the camera. She was extremely unhappy, and for the first time, the sleeping pills that she was taking nightly to calm her nerves began to impair her work. She'd excel in dance rehearsals in the afternoon, but by the next morning when she had to repeat them for the camera, she would have forgotten the routines. Her trouble at work and her trouble at home fed off one another. DiMaggio unfortunately came to visit the set on the day Marilyn was shooting the heat wave number, the most suggestive in the film, and when she tried to show her husband affection on the set, he rejected her. DiMaggio also tried to order her to sever her two closest professional relationships with acting coach Natasha Latesse and music director Hal Schaefer. There is some speculation that Schaefer and Marilyn were having an affair. For reasons that no one can know for sure today, Schaefer attempted suicide during the making of There's No Business Like Show Business by washing down a handful of downers with typewriter fluid. He survived, but Luella Parsons reported that DiMaggio didn't like Marilyn visiting Schaefer in the hospital. She moved without a break from show business to seven-year itch, which filmed in New York. The highlight of the making of the film was the night that Marilyn participated in a location shoot slash publicity stunt 
in which she posed for two hours standing above a subway grate on Lexington Avenue, a wind machine blowing the skirt of her white halter dress up around her white panties. The version of this scene that appears in the film was shot later on a soundstage. Out in the cold that night, the scantily dressed Marilyn contracted a virus, which would develop into pneumonia, which delayed the completion of the movie. But it was worth it. The location shoot was essential as an event, photographed extensively and witnessed by real people, Marilyn's fans. It was also witnessed, for a few minutes at least, by Joe DiMaggio, who was coaxed from his hotel room onto the sidelines of the shoot by mercenary columnist Walter Winchell. DiMaggio soon became disgusted at the sight of his wife giving the people what they wanted, and he went back to his hotel. The next morning, Marilyn came to set with bruises on her shoulders. When the movie was completed, Marilyn filed for divorce. Later, she admitted that the marriage was probably doomed from the start, because Joe wanted a different woman than the one he had married. He didn't like the women I played. He thought they were sluts. He didn't like the actors kissing me, and he didn't like my costumes. When I told him I had to dress the way I did, that it was part of my job, he said I should quit that job. But who did he think he was marrying when he was marrying me? To tell the truth, our marriage was a sort of crazy, difficult friendship with sexual privileges. Later, I learned, that's what marriages often are. With her value to Fox now readily apparent thanks to a series of smash-hit films, her representatives were able to negotiate a new contract, which would allow Marilyn to choose and produce her own projects through her own production company, in which Marilyn would share authority with Milton Green, the photographer behind many of her most beautiful photos, and, intermittently, her lover. A press conference was held in New York to announce the new venture, and Marilyn arrived wearing a white fur, her hair bleached lighter than it had ever been. It seemed clear that she was styling herself after Jean Harlow. And yet, whether she understood it at the time of the press conference or not, this would be a turning point in her career away from the Harlow model. From this point on, she'd actively attempt to step beyond the bombshell mode in order to become a real actress and a whole person. Beginning in 1955, while living in New York and free from the control of a studio for the first time in her career, Marilyn found two new muses, the actor's studio and psychoanalysis. She was serious enough about wanting to be seen as something other than a sex pot that she experimented with dressing for the career she wanted to have, which meant stripping away the glamorized trappings of the Hollywood star and appearing in public extremely dressed down, often in jeans and a simple sweater with a scarf tied over her head. She would move about Manhattan unrecognized, and then when no one mobbed her, she'd thirst for attention. A female friend remembered accompanying Marilyn on a shopping trip, where the actress entered a dressing room at Saks in disguise, complete with wig and dark glasses, and came out transformed into Marilyn Monroe. She started referring to her star persona in the third person as her, and it became clear to those close to her that the persona was something she could turn off or on at will. 
Even after filing for divorce, Marilyn would continue to see Joe through her first months as a supposed free agent in New York, even after she had begun a romance with Arthur Miller, who was married. It was DiMaggio who accompanied her to the premiere of Seven Year Itch, which would become the biggest movie of the summer of 1955. But soon, Miller came to dominate Marilyn's affections. And when she left for Hollywood to make Bus Stop, the first production of Marilyn Monroe Productions... Miller went to Nevada to start the process of getting a divorce. Bus Stop would also be the first film Marilyn made under the influence of the Actors Studio and the Strasberg version of The Method, which was supported on set by the presence of Paula Strasberg, who had replaced Natasha Latesse as Marilyn's personal coach. The result? is that Marilyn gives a completely different kind of performance than had ever been seen from her, while completely hewing to the image that made her a star. As a roadhouse singer from hillbilly country, she does a really broad accent, which occasionally feels misjudged, but on the whole, it succeeds in making her seem like a different person, an actual character, even as she looks more like Marilyn Monroe than ever. The film itself oscillates between garish comedy and a sensitive, technicolor exploration of a woman determined to direct her own life in circumstances that give her few options. On the whole, the plot, in which a cowboy tries to force Marilyn's chanteuse to marry him, is pretty cringeworthy. In the denouement, Marilyn's character suddenly decides to fall in love with the pushy cowboy after fighting him for the whole film because he accepts her as she is, checkered past and all, uncritically. By our standards of today, this is the epitome of unwoke. But the fact that Marilyn chose this film, and that it was the first thing she chose to do the first time she was given any freedom to make a choice, is sort of touching. After all, all she was looking for in her own life was a man who would love her unconditionally. Bus Stop was another big hit, and by the end of 1956, Marilyn was ranked as the top female box office draw in Hollywood. After a grueling shoot in Hollywood, where Marilyn, battling her own lack of confidence, often worked late with Paula Strasberg, took pills to sleep, and then couldn't wake up for her morning call times, Marilyn was happy to join the newly divorced Arthur Miller on the East Coast where he went straight into battle with the House Un-American Activities Committee. We talked about this and a few other aspects of the Monroe-Miller relationship in episode 84 in our Blacklist series. Marilyn's second effort as producer was The Prince and the Showgirl. On Prince, she hired Laurence Olivier as her co-star and director, They announced the project at a press conference, where Marilyn arranged to have the spaghetti strap on her dress break, ensuring a photograph of her struggling against nudity would make the cover of all the next day's papers. This oopsie show of sexuality was highly calculated. It was Marilyn figuring out what men wanted from her and giving it to them. Olivier and Marilyn would not have a good working relationship on The Prince and the Showgirl, in part because he assumed her talents were limited to stunts like the one at the press conference. Any expectations she had had of using Olivier to vault into a realm of respectability were crushed when she appeared on set and he told her, All you have to do is be sexy. 
dear Marilyn. Fearing that the film was doomed from the start, Marilyn withdrew and essentially became undirectable. The Prince and the Showgirl is probably no one's favorite Marilyn Monroe film, and I personally find it unwatchably boring, but I sense that it's not Marilyn's fault. Even Olivier had to acknowledge that his actress brought something to the screen that was unique. On set one day, Olivier marveled over the innocent quality Marilyn was able to bring to sexualized material. Look at that face, Olivier said. She could be five years old. This, of course, was the essence of the Marilyn Monroe persona. The most sexual actress in movies was also the most seemingly innocent and childlike, And the push and pull between the promise her body seemed to make and her brain and her heart's apparent immaturity is what made her the star that she was. But for much of her career, behind the facade, Marilyn was a calculating woman who used every opportunity to use her talents to get what she wanted. Even when powerless as a studio contract girl, she used her mastery over photographers and savvy with publicity to create a type of stardom that was beyond even the most cynical studio power broker's dreams. It was when the childlike part of her began overwhelming the adult part that she started to get into trouble. For several years, Marilyn Monroe had been emotionally fragile, and her use of barbiturates to calm her nerves at night had caused problems during her days. But it was on the set of The Prince and the Showgirl that Marilyn began a decline into dependency that she wouldn't be able to pull out of. Certainly, like a small child, Marilyn was dependent on the hand-holding of her mother figure, acting coach Paula Strasberg. Olivier claimed that Paula's coaching basically consisted of bullshit artistry. Paula would tell Marilyn that she was not only the most important woman alive, but the greatest historical figure of all time. At one point, even name-checking Jesus as one of the many who were beneath her. According to Olivier, Paula knew nothing. She was no actress, no director, no teacher, no advisor. Except in Marilyn's eyes. For she had one talent. She could butter Marilyn up. Olivier's commentary seems somewhat unfair, given Strasbourg's evident influence on two of Marilyn's best performances, in Bus Stop and The Misfits. But certainly, Marilyn came to depend on Strasbourg, and Strasbourg took advantage of that, to the extent that Miller believed that both Paula and Lee Strasbourg were parasites, destroying his wife emotionally and financially. Caught in the middle of forces who patronizingly told her they wanted the best for her, but seemed incapable of giving her what she felt she needed, Marilyn began to fall apart. By the middle of the print shoot, no one, not her husband, not her coach Paula, not her business partner Milton Green, and certainly not Laurence Olivier, could give Marilyn the confidence she felt she needed to do good work, or even get through a shooting day without a crisis. At the moment that she felt she most needed Miller to hold her up, she found notes he had written about her as part of his research for the screenplay he was writing. In the notes, Miller explained that he had thought Marilyn was an angel, but now he realized that she was just a woman. 
As much as Marilyn wanted to be more than a sex goddess, she couldn't handle having her husband admit his disappointment that she was a mere mortal. Marilyn dealt with her anxieties while making The Prince and the Showgirl by disappearing into a stupor of sleeping pills and champagne. In the middle of shooting, she discovered she was pregnant. She'd lost the baby before the shoot ended. When the movie was finally in the can, Marilyn and her husband returned to New York, and the actress began a two-year hiatus from making movies, during which she'd focus on her personal development. When she came back to make Some Like It Hot, it was at Miller's urging, and against her better instincts. It was the right choice for her career, possibly the last correct choice she'd have a chance to make in terms of movies. But it sent the Miller-Monroe marriage into a tailspin, which in turn exacerbated her insecurity and her dependence on drugs, and perhaps just as dangerously, on doctors who used those drugs to control her. We will discuss all of that and the sad results of that next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find notes about the sources we use in our research, as well as photos, videos, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you haven't already, subscribing to the show and rating and reviewing it on iTunes really helps people find it. Of course, you can subscribe on any podcatcher of your choice as well. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. 